Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome to the Serial Killer Podcast, the podcast dedicated to serial killers, who they were, what they did, and how. I am your Norwegian host, Thomas Vaborg Thun, and tonight, dear listener, we continue our stay in the very beginnings of the 20th century in the United States of America. Tonight, we continue our expose into Norway's most notorious serial killer, Bell Gunness. In the previous episode, I explained Bell's life in the USA and how she apparently was very unlucky in her marriages and courtships, since all of them seemed to end in the men either disappearing or suddenly dying. In this episode, we will continue to delve into the details of Bell's murderous reign out there on the Midwestern Plains lands. Great things are happening to the Serial Killer Podcast, dear listener. Thanks to you, my sponsors, and of course my very dear Patreons. I am from now on able to publish a fresh new episode every single week. As an added bonus, the lovely introduction music you just listened to is now available. Go to theserialkillerpodcast.com to download this exclusive ringtone now, and you won't regret it. Also, do not miss out on exciting news, such as the Kickstarter project we got going with the premium mug that changes color as it heats up. So sign up at theserialkillerpodcast.com Slash tell me. Naturally, being the modern podcast host that I am, 
I have a Facebook fan page for my dear listeners. Go to facebook.com slash the SK podcast for Facebook live events and frequent interaction with me, your humble host. Your support means a lot to me, and I hope to continue to bring you high-quality content for a long time to come. If you would like to donate, please go to the serialkillerpodcast.com slash donate, or simply go to patreon.com slash the Serial Killer Podcast directly. If you're unable to contribute, then you can still help out by telling your friends about your favorite podcast and helping us grow through word of mouth. The larger my fan base gets, the more stable this program becomes and the more resources I'll be able to devote to it in the future. A few days after the fire, Ray Lamphere brooded in the courthouse lockup. Sorry he had ever heard the name Belgunus. He realized he was in a precarious position and hoped that he could wiggle out of this situation. Somehow. Being a poor working farmhand, he naturally had no money for a lawyer. The law alleged he had killed Belgunus, but first the law would have to prove it was Belgunus who was found dead. And from what he was hearing from friends who visited him in his cell, popular opinion was quickly moving in his favor. Much of the town really didn't believe that a headless woman found under the rubble of the farmhouse was its owner. Rumors mentioned a much smaller victim than the corpulent and sturdy Norse woman. More so if there was a scoundrel in their midst, it wasn't considered at the moment to be Ray Lamphere. The name whispered on everyone's lips with horror those days was none other than Belgenus herself. The good citizens of Laporte was feeling a lot of reticence. There were doubts. It was conspicuous that so many of her suitors seemed to have come and gone, only to fade into thin air, and they often left behind all of their personal belongings. Belgunus herself had been seen in the fields afterwards, wearing the men's long coats to plough, their hats to shield from the rain. Perhaps even more worrying was the question of where Jenny, the daughter, was. The college she was supposed to have attended in San Francisco had no record of her. Finally, people were wondering how Belgunus could live such a financially comfortable life, considering her very meager earnings from her trade. Suspect clues were starting to turn up in the rubble of her burnt-down house. Men's watches, men's coat buttons, men's billfolds, all emptied. Then a human rib cage, recently buried. Then a skeletal arm, recently buried. Then a complete skeleton, recently buried. Sheriff Al Smutzer, wanting like hell to keep this scandal to his peace-loving town quiet, hired Joe Maxson and Bell's neighbor, Daniel Hudson, to quietly dig through the rubble to see what else might turn up. In particularly, Belganus's head, and report directly to him, no one else, if they found something relevant. 
But the diggers couldn't hide themselves, especially since a daily parade of townsfolk passed the charred remains of the house. Sometimes they would stop their buggies to gawk and whisper and cross themselves, warding off the demon that brooded in the midst over the silent ruin. In May, a small little man approached the sheriff in his office and introduced himself as the brother of Andrew Helgelein, that big Swede from South Dakota who, like so many others, wooed Bell one day and were gone the next. This fellow, Osle Helgelein, had known that Andrew arrived in Laporte in January 1908 to withdraw his savings from the Bank of South Dakota with Bell at his side. Having read in the Scandinavian newspaper about the Bell Gunner's fire, and not having heard from his brother since he had left for Indiana, he had come to Laporte to investigate. Andrew, he explained, had first heard of Bell from the mail-order brides column in the Scandinavian, where immigrant brides often advertised for a husband. In his possession were dozens of letters, six months' worth, that Bell had written to Andrew, entreating him to join him as husband in Laporte. According to the Laporte Historical Society, one of the letters included a four-leaf clover for good measure. Asle found it strange that after so long a communication and after entrusting to her his savings of some eighteen hundred dollars, only for his brother to just run off, it just didn't make sense. Belle's correspondences were earthy and she painted herself as a good Norwegian woman desiring a faithful husband, lover and provider for her and her family. As the relationship grew through the written word, however, Belle began to surface more and more with monetary motivation. After Andrew had made up his mind that he was coming to Laporte, Belle exhibited a wiliness born from experience. She had written, and I quote, Do not send any cash money through the bank. Banks cannot be trusted nowadays. Change all the cash you have into paper bills, largest denomination you can get, and sew them real good and fast on the inside of your underwear. Be careful and sew it real good, and be sure do not tell anyone of it, not even to your nearest relative. Let this only be a secret between us two and no one else. Probably we will have many other secrets, do you not think? End quote. Sheriff Smutzer thought that Asle was overreacting. Belgenus, he said, was not a gold digger, and he was sure she was no murderess. But Asle Helgelein was unconvinced. The latter knew of the digging taking place on the farm, and heard that certain belongings, such as watches, were churning over across the property. Perhaps he might find an article belonging to his prodigal brother there himself. Asle introduced himself to Joe Maxon and Daniel Hudson and offered to help them dig. 
As he explained later, he had a hunch. He asked farmhand Maxon if Bell had dug any holes on her property, perhaps for trash or cinders, since January, the time his brother had been there. As a matter of fact, yes, Maxon replied. There was a large garbage pit behind the house, near the hog pen where she had been throwing old boots, ham bones, coffee tins, things like that. She had me covered it over around March. Why? Without reply, Osler picked up a shovel and began to dig where Maxon had pointed. On cue, the two others followed, unearthing clumps of earth at a time. Near the top they uncovered boots, pieces of crate, trash, of a general variety. But as they dug deeper, an unnatural smell began to assail their nostrils. In a little while, the spades struck something covered over with some old oilcloth and a burlap sack. The stench grew stronger. The diggers lifted off the covering and saw a human arm. They lifted then from the earth, vivid and rotten, the remains of what had once been a man. Osler looked at the pulpy, sightless eyes and the fixed, mirthless grin of a face he knew well. That's my brother, he exclaimed with rage and despair in his voice. Andrew Helgeline's body was in pieces. His arms, legs and head had been packed hastily in a series of flour and produce sacks. The sheriff was summoned and the digging continued. Before the day was out, they had disinterred four more bodies, two males and two females, packaged in the same manner as the big Swede. Of the women, one was obviously Jenny, the foster daughter who hadn't gone to California after all. Though badly decomposed, her facial features were recognizable. Her long blonde hair that flowed so prettily in the Indiana sun still clung to what was left of her skull. A conjecture made by the Laporte County Historical Museum is that Jenny was murdered as she got suspicious because her stepmother's suitors always left the farm during the night. And Belle couldn't have a suspicious girl running around her house and maybe start blabbing to the townsfolk as well. Laporte, as a community, shrieked with dismay and in terror. Belle Gunness, lonely Belle Gunness who everyone felt sorry for, she was a lady bluebeard with the greed of mammon and the heart of a Satan. Try as he may, Sheriff Smutzer could no longer conceal the truth from the world, and Serene Laporte turned into a media circus overnight. Eastbound trains and westbound trains and special flyers chugged into the depot hourly depositing the reporters from as near as Terre Haute, Indiana, and as far away as Seattle. They converged on the largest hotel in town, the Tea Garden, courted its terraced dinette as a virtual newsroom. Between it and the Gunners' farm, 
Bug is full of notebook-scratching snoops and busy-fingered photographers rambled night and day. Well into the morning, the clitter-clack-clatter-click of their wireless machines clapped out the dirge of Belganus, black widow who might still be alive. They intercepted the residents of the town for whatever information they could get about the woman of the hour. Many knew her and expressed their shock. Many replied that, now that they think about it, yes, she did in fact act awfully suspicious. And as for those bodies found on her premises, there was more horror yet to see the light of day. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all have our burdens to bear, dear listener. And as a man, I was and am often told to suck it up keep calm, and carry on. Normally, good advice in many situations. But never talking about what bothers you is not healthy. Therapy is great to get things off your chest, to vent, and best of all, to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Everyone needs someone to talk to, even psychopaths, even your humble host. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash killer today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash killer. There were so many, so many names, so many faces. Investigators and townsfolk alike asked themselves where they had gone, these working men and farmhands who worked for Belle and courted her. Had they all unknowingly walked into their mistress's personal execution chamber? Where was Ole Budsberg? asked the town. He had been another of Belle's potentials. Mr. Bootsberg had withdrawn $1,800 on the 26th of April, 1907. He was escorted by Mrs. Gunness and had not been seen since. His sons had written to ask what had become of him, and the bank cashier called on Mrs. Gunness to inquire. She said Ole Bootsberg had gone to Oregon, far away on the other side of the continental USA. Swan Nicholson, a Laporte resident, was asking, particularly about a fellow he had come to know and like. Where is Olaf Lindblow? 
He was fresh from Norway, about thirty years old and a fine-looking young fellow. Chris Christopherson, not to be confused with the famous country singer and actor, who lived off McClung Road near Bell, replied, The last I saw of Olaf was in the spring of 1904. He was moving the old privy on Bell's property off its hole. Next time I visited the farm, there was Mrs. Gunness complaining that he had left her in the lurch and gone off to St. Louis to see the fair. Another name that left people guessing was that of Henry Gudholt. The merchants in town recalled his pleasant disposition and his courteous way of handling Bell's affairs on market day. Christofferson remembered the spring-like day Gerholt arrived in 1905. He had helped him carry his trunk upstairs, and he remembered the week he washed into oblivion. In August, Bell came to Christofferson to help stack oats, because Henry had left her flat in the middle of oat-cutting to apparently go off with a horse-trader. Certain farmhands were on the farm so briefly that the townspeople never had a chance to know their names. For instance, said butcher Emil Palm, there was a young boy at the farm last summer who came into Laporte several times with Mrs. Gunness, but then stopped coming. One time I asked her what had become of the boy, and she looked up at a piece of meat and remarked what a lovely cut it would make. There were others, many others. The next farmhand disappeared suddenly too, so suddenly that he left his horse and buggy behind him. Throughout May, the digging continued, and some of the above missing persons were, as suspected, discovered under the soil at Gunnar's farm. Among them were Bootsberg, Gurholt, and Emil Palm's anonymous lad. As with the other victims, heads were detached and the bodies were severed at several joints. These latest revelations were found in a pile of soft earth that also contained a woman's shoes, a purse frame, and a truss, probably belonging to the unidentified female corpse discovered earlier. Deep down, under the others was a skeleton of a young boy, whose wisdom teeth had just begun to grow before he was killed. Speculation turned to the deaths of Bell's two husbands, Mats Sorensen in Chicago, who died of unknown causes, and Peter Gunness, crushed accidentally by a tumbled sausage grinder. Of the former, a doctor named J.B. Miller from Chicago now came forth, to admit that Mats showed all the signs of strychnine poisoning. However, Miller's superior did not prefer to cause the widow needless pain, as she had apparently been very wrought with grief, and, since he had been treating his patient for a heart disease anyway, indicated the cause of death as enlargement of the heart, and signed the death certificate. Now, dear listener, before we continue, I need to remind you what strychnine poisoning actually entails. When one reads or hears about people being poisoned to death, 
It is often thought that this is a humane method of murder. It rarely is. Ten to twenty minutes after being poisoned, the body's muscles begin to spasm, starting with the head and neck, in the form of trismus. Trismus is a painful condition that prevents the mouth from fully opening, and rhesus sardonicus, or rictus grin, which is a highly characteristic abnormal sustained spasm of the facial muscles that appears to produce grinning. The spasms then spread to every muscle in the body, with nearly continuous convulsions, and get worse at the slightest stimulus. The convulsions then progress, increasing in intensity and frequency until the backbone arches continually, almost breaking the victim's back. Convulsions then lead to nausea, vomiting, labored and deep breathing, and general weakness, hyperthermia, and rhabdomyolysis. Rhabdomyolysis is a condition in which damaged skeletal muscle breaks down rapidly. Symptoms of this include muscle pains, further weakness, vomiting, and more extreme states of confusion. Death comes from asphyxiation caused by paralysis of the neural pathways that control breathing, or by exhaustion from the convulsions. The victim usually dies within two to three hours after exposure. It is a brutal and extremely painful way to die. Muds succumbed on the one day when two insurance policies overlapping made his death worth twice as much as it would have been worth on any other day. Belle had wept her way out of an autopsy. There had been an inquest a year later when Peter Gunness died. The law questioned the suspicious nature of the death. It bore all marks of mischief. There was, after all, no reasonable explanation as to how that meat grinder could have fallen. Throughout the hearing, Belle veiled and wrung her hands, a picture-perfect martyr evermore. The sheriff wasn't satisfied. Nor was the coroner, who even went as far as to question young Jenny about her foster parents' relationship with each other, hinting murder. Briefly surfacing were allusions to Peter's child's death while in Bell's care, again tickling foul play. But, in the end, the verdict was accidental death. Mrs. Gunners was cool at the funeral. During the preaching, she sat moaning with her fingers before her eyes. Townsman Albert Nicholson, however, could see that she was peeking alertly between her fingers to check the effect she was making. That made him certain of her guilt. Even little Myrtle had known it. Only a week before the fire, she had whispered in the air of a small schoolmate. My mama killed my papa. She hit him with a meat cleaver and he died. Don't tell a soul. Her chum had obeyed her admonition to secrecy until the innocent Myrtle 
was nothing but ashes. But now, in May 1908, Bell secrets were exploding out like pyrotechnics at a Fourth of July celebration. All the world waited and watched and prayed. They waited to see if the diggers would ever find Bell's head, watched for headlines that read, Bell Gunness escaped blaze, and prayed to hear that good doth triumph in the end over evil with the arrest and punishment of the Black Widow of Indiana. One of my favorite authors, Aldous Huxley, famously said, Facts do not cease to exist because they are ignored. And this can, with ease, be said to be apt in the case of Bell Gunness. Another idiom that can be combined with Huxley's is how every crime has its scapegoat. And in the Gunness case, the goat had a name, Ray Lamphere. The state believed in his guilt and wanted to prosecute. Because the jealous lover had so many times tried to intimidate, even threaten the widow, prosecutor Ralph N. Smith, representing the state of Indiana, believed he had it in him to murder. And besides, the political party always fares better at election time when they've caged the wolf that attacked the sheep herd. But a technicality existed. Even though the bodies of the gunner's children were found and identified, until the headless woman found with them was proven to be Belle herself, the court-appointed defense would have in its kit bag of tricks the more enduring loophole. It was Belle who Ray wanted dead, not her children, and given the state of affairs at the gunner's farm, who was to say that Belle didn't commit the murders of her own doves? before she flew the coop. In an effort to nevertheless have Lamferp indicted for murder, when the grand jury reconvened in May, Smith put pressure on the Gunners Farm diggers to find Bell's skull. Sheriff Smutzer, a staunch Republican and of the Smith regime, sent his county police in all directions to find evidence, any evidence, that might implicate their current guest at the county jail. But the investigators found nothing, and the only material turning up under ash and brick at the fire site were more watches, scraps of a burned anatomy guide, silverware, and everything useless to ambitious lawyer and sheriff seeking justice and votes, according to some townsfolk. However, Mrs. Gunness's dentist, Ira Norton, volunteered helpful information. If you can find her false teeth, I can identify them, he explained. Last fall, I made her a set of six porcelain teeth backed with gold. If Mrs. Gunness is dead in the fire, those teeth are still in the ashes. An ancient Laportian who had once prospected for gold in Colorado was called upon as adviser. Louis Schultz told Smith that if he could have a sluice box, the type they were now using to find nuggets in the Klondike, 
Smith would have his gold teeth within a week. Schultz provided the promise, Smith the sluice box. In the meantime, the citizens of Laporte were dividing between pro-Lamphere and con-Lamphere. She's dead, cried the bankers, who disbelieved anyone would leave town with $720 still in their savings. She's alive, argued the local doctor who examined the headless corpse and found a much more diminutive body than the hefty Bell Gunners, whom he knew in life. Nowhere were the factions more evident than in the two opposing papers in town. The Republican-held Herald supported Smith, while the Argus, under the editorship of crusading Democrat Harry N. Darling, derided the notion that Lamphere was anything but a patsy. The Herald saw Bell Gunners dead. The Argus envisioned her alive and well and on the lamb to the devil knows where. Holding half an interest in the Argus was town mayor Lemuel Darrow, a Democrat. Because of his political affiliation, the city workers under his patronage naturally, at least vocally, enlisted the pro-Lamphere leanings to the point that the city police refused to cooperate with Sheriff Smutzer's troops in helping to prosecute Lamphere. Instead, Darrow hired the private Clark Detective Agency from Chicago and set its agent, one C.C. Fish, out in hot pursuit of Fugitive Bell. Simultaneously, Darrow's law partner, Wirt Warden, offered his services or gratis, to defend the Republicans' pawn. On Tuesday, the 12th of May, Schultz, the prospector, found Bell's dentures. Dr. Norton agreed, they're hers. And the coroner expediently pronounced Bell dead of felonious homicide. On the 22nd of May, the grand jury indicted Ray Lamphere of arson and the murder of the Gunners family. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack 
for free shipping and 365 day returns. And so ends part two of the tale of Bell Gunnus. But the serial killer podcast is far from finished with her. So, as they say in the land of radio, stay tuned next week for part three. I have been your host, Thomas Vaborg Thuk. Doing this podcast is a labor of love, and I couldn't have done it without my loyal listeners. This podcast has been able to bring serial killer stories to life, especially thanks to those of you that support me via Patreon. You can do so at theserialkillerpodcast.com slash donate. There are especially a few patrons that have stayed loyal for a long time. Maud, Wendy, Mickey, Sydney, Lexi, Christina, Philip, Jason, Lisbeth, Sarah, Tommy, Charlotte, Craig, Amber, Troy, and Anne Kay. Your monthly contributions really help keep this podcast thriving. You have my deepest gratitude. As always, thank you, dear listener, for listening. And feel free to leave a review on your favorite podcast app or website. And please do subscribe to the show if you enjoy it. Thank you. Good night. And good luck. Good luck.